Backing up a little bit in Acts chapter 22, going into the rest of Acts 22 and looking into Acts 23 as we go through our devotional study through the book of Acts of the Apostles. It says in verse 19, Lord, I replied, um, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And of course, this is Paul speaking here. And uh, when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is Paul talking about his, um, his testimony, his experience going into um, Damascus and, and seeing the light and being blinded and then being healed from that and getting his calling, his, his assignments from God. And here he's, 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 he was discussing with the Lord, if you will, the fact that it, you know, he would have a lot of problem with in Jerusalem because of uh, the, the zealous Jews like him who wanted to see the way, these Christians, these people who are followers of Jesus, they wanted to see them be gone with. They didn't like this new sect, this new religious sect, this, this, these, these people called the way, you know, which of course is a reference to Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father but through Jesus. And this is very offensive to the Jews in Jerusalem. So, and God understood this, obviously, because God's God and all. And, and, he, and he sympathized with, with, with Paul and said, that's fine. Go to the Gentiles. Go away from Jerusalem, far into Jerusalem. And we see him through Acts, Paul's ministry going through you know, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And, and his goal, his heart was to get to Rome eventually. He wanted to conquer the Roman world, if you will. And he will get his wishes. And we'll see that this morning. But the crowd hearing this, the fact that, you know, Paul was for the Gentiles, you know, this, the, the, this is the part of the issue at hand. The part of the reason why the, the Jews in Jerusalem hated Paul is because not just this Jesus sect thing. This wasn't really seen to be the problem per se at this time, this moment. What it was is about their staunch legalism, their old ritualistic Judaistic ways. They loved their customs and traditions. And, they, and, and as Paul in Galatians saw it as a yoke of bondage, they wanted to put this yoke of bondage on the Gentiles. And so this is a, a sore issue. The, the, the concept, the idea of, of, of finding God the Father only through faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't like this. And this is causing bother for Paul. And this is where the heart of this persecution is at this moment. And so, so hearing this, they, they, in verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this at this moment. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging the dust in the air in a, in a very passionate way, because, you know, it's passionate to throw your cloaks on the ground. Ah, oh, I really hate you. And I'm going to show you I really hate you by throwing things around. 
He did this to Paul. They're showing their emotions, their zeal against Paul. And Paul understood the zeal because he was very zealous, as he just already described. But they don't like this. They don't like this, 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 this thing. It's an affront upon their religious system. Going on to the next slide. Next slide, I called so much for due process. And then you'll see why in a moment. Due process. You know what due process is. Fair treatment through the normal judicial system. Especially a citizen's, key term, citizen's entitlement to notice of charge and a hearing before an impartial judge. Let's just get that concept in our mind as we see that this is not what's happening with Paul here. In Acts 22, verse 24, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find... Now, the word in some translations, flog and interrogate, are one. The point of the flogging, and by the word for flogging, this is nasty. This is what they did to Jesus, which nearly killed him before the cross. That beat him so badly that he couldn't carry the cross. That he had to have help, assistance carrying the cross. So this flogging isn't like the whippings that you would get, like the 39 lashings that the Jews would, that he already encountered. This wasn't like the, the beating of the rods that he encountered in, in, in Philippi. This was basically near death, if not death, torture. Okay, this is big stuff. Now, bear in mind, the, the commander didn't even know who he was. Aren't you that guy from Egypt who caused problems? You know, No, he doesn't even know who Paul is. And he's about ready to basically kill him via flogging. And the point of flogging is, it is it's a radical means of torture to, to get the truth out. And in fact, the word for flogging is, is similar to the word for plague. It's like, it's like a plague from God. So if you're flogged, you're basically plagued by God or plagued it's a plague of God. And so it's really an intense, radical concept. The truth will come out if we kill you. Whatever. So they're flogging in this interrogation in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Again, Paul, why are those people mad at you? Well, let's kill you to find out. Due process. So much for that. As he stretched him out to flog him, Paul says to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? Again, the concept of a Roman citizen. You know, they, they are due this due process. Is it right? Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, when the centurion heard this, huh? he went to the commander and reported it. Uh, what are you going to do here? Because you see, it's illegal. You see, the Roman citizens are due rights. And this, to me, again, talking about human rights, which is a modern concept. They didn't have that back then. Any person, you know, you was, you'd imagine it would have some kind of like human right to be freed from these things like floggings and killings, right? But that didn't happen. That didn't exist back then. That's a modern concept. But the Romans, citizens, they had that right. So this is a problem. So this, this centurion went to his commanding officer and said, listen, we have a problem on our hands. What are you going to do? This man claims to be a Roman citizen, and so the commander, verse 27, went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. And then in a condescending fashion, in verse 28, the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Again, back then there was a lot of corruption. And so to, 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 to decorate the houses of the, of the, of the you know, the, the elites and, you know, of, uh, of Rome, they would uh, charge people. Oh, I guess if you want to be a citizen, you can pay for it. Bribery and, you know, you know, and they would sign a document. Here you go. It wasn't the system that we have again today where you would go through a, a system 
you know, to like, you know, to become a nationalized and become a citizen. No, it was about bribery and it was about corruption. And so the, so the commander goes, oh, I understand the system. So who'd you bribe for your citizenship? And Paul said, I didn't bribe anyone. I'm a genuine citizen. I was born a citizen. So then those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately because they were about ready to commit a crime in which they would be charged with their own life to flog a Roman citizen without giving them the due process, right? Would warrant their own arrests in flogging. So they were freaking out. Uh-uh, I ain't touching this guy. I'm not gonna be responsible for the bloodshed on this guy. So they stopped immediately. <clears throat> and the commander himself was alarmed because of course he was the one who put him up to this. As he realized that he, had, um, that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. And the concept of ch in chains is for the intent of flogging him, basically, for killing him without a trial that he was due as a Roman citizen. Next slide. The next slide, I couldn't think of a good name, so I called it Oopsies before the Sanhedrin. So what they did is they decided to take him before, instead, just like with Jesus, they kind of bounced, remember that Jesus, they bounced Jesus back and forth. Who's going to take, who's going to take the blame of, 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 of a guilty charge of an innocent man? And that's basically what happening here with Paul as well, very similar. No, who's, who's going to charge an innocent man of guilt? So, okay, if, if we're, we're not going to do it. You know, the Romans guard, the commander, rather, he's not going to do it. So he's going to send to the Sanhedrin. You guys have a problem with him? You charge him. I don't want to deal with him. So in verse 30 of Acts 22, the commander wanted to find exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So he's like, listen, guys, I can't charge him. I have nothing He's a Roman citizen. I, he, he has his rights to be tried impartially. We have no reason to condemn him. So what's your problem? Get together your leaders, Sanhedrin people, you know, these Jewish religious folk, you know, your elders. You have, a, you have the problem. Your people are going crazy. What's the problem? Let's get down to it. Let's give them a fair trial. And this is what a fair trial looks like in Acts 23, verse 1. So Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. That's all he said. And then the high priest, who has, was known for being a bit of a hothead, a bit greedy, a bit, you know, this fella, Ananias, in fact, likely the same guy who ordered Jesus to be slapped when he was in trial, this, this high priest, Ananias, ordered that those standing near Paul be stricken in the mouth. Punch him in the mouth, this, this hot-headed, arrogant high priest fella. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were hearing Paul, or standing here, Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Now, Paul replied in verse 5, Brothers, I did not realize that he was a high priest. Now, whether or not he really realized him, or if he's playing a game, who knows. We do know Paul did have some eye issues. So maybe he didn't recognize him. Maybe he wasn't wearing his normal getup as a high priest. But regardless, the point was made. He was a hypocrite. Why are you charging me of being 
a lawbreaker while you're breaking your all yourself, not allow me my you know, due process. By striking me without cause, that's an illegal. He was venting against Paul. He was doing something that was unethical, immoral, and frankly illegal. So he's like, you're charging me for, I've done nothing. All I've done is walked into Jerusalem. And I've come to, to worship God I'm by your terms. Don't forget, he was doing the ceremonies. Remember the elders in the church in Jerusalem? They said, just, just do your normal customs, just to keep the peace. He did that. He goes, okay. What's your charge? You're here about already having me flogged by the Romans. And now I'm sitting here and I'm saying, I'm, what, what, all I've done, I've done with a good conscience. And you punch me in the face. What's up with that? Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the rulers of your people. And this is from Exodus 22, 28. Next slide, please. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sanhedrin, or Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin. Now, maybe he was being tactful here. Maybe he was, he was playing his audience because he knew that there was a divide. There was a division between the Pharisees. In the Sadducees. The Sadducees were liberal. They were the liberal sect. They uh, didn't believe in things like supernatural things, like, like um, angels and ghosts and spirits and things like that. They were influenced heavily by the Hellenistic philosophers, like guys like Epicurus, who, didn't, who were materialists. They didn't believe in spiritual things. And their God is different than the God of the Pharisees and different than the God of Christians. Christians, like the Pharisees, would believe in a theistic God, a God who interacts. But the Sadducees believed in a deistic God. That means a God who kind of started things off but doesn't interact. He's, he's, he's a different kind of substance and doesn't interact. And so they didn't believe in things like angels and demons and in life after death and resurrection, stuff like that. So he's using his, you know, this knowledge to like you know, maybe direct the attention off of him and onto something else? I don't know, possibly. But so he says, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a descendant of, or from the Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. This is, this is just interesting because this is true. He lives his life, risking his life every day because he has this hope. Not that when he dies, he would just be away, annihilated, you know, made non-extinct. He believes that there is a life after death. And, he, and a part of that life after death is God, his kingdom, his you know, paradise, if you will. A newness, a new heaven, a new earth. And in this place, he believes that what he does here matters to what happens there as far as him as a person's concerned. And that's how he lives his life. I don't care if I die, because if I die, I'm with God. And in order to believe that, you have to believe in life after death. The Sadducees didn't believe in that. Paul believed in that. Christians believe in that. The New Testament's filled with these things. However, the Pharisees believed as well. However, the Sadducees did not believe in this. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as you would expect. They're very passionate people. And the assembly was divided. So, in parentheses here in verse 8, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. Again, this is 
proving what I just said a moment ago. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believed all these things. The problem with liberalism, okay, and, and that's why I explained to you guys a little bit about because I've, I've talked to Christians before, uh, especially young Christians who, who don't understand what that means, the concept of liberalism in, in context with theology, okay? Because liberalism is a good thing when it comes to certain things like politics and whatnot. It's, you know, the, 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 the ability to freely choose and stuff like that. These are good concepts, politically speaking, if you know. However, in theology, it doesn't work. And the reason why it, it doesn't work is because liberalism rejects, especially in Christian theology, um, things like the inerrancy of scriptures and divine revelation. You see, in Paul's day, the Sadducees were materialists, okay? And you got to follow this argument here, guys. It's very important. They were materialists, and consequently, they were liberal, and, and, and what liberals in theology want to do, they want to see evidences and proofs that are empirical. So you see, the reason why, they, why that's important is because as materialists, they don't believe that God talks to people. You see what I'm saying? Because God doesn't interact. You see how materialists, they, 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 it's just matter, and there's no angels, there's no, de- there's no spirits, there's nothing like that, no life or death. It's just matter. So all we have is matter, a matter of fact. And because of that, God doesn't interact. You see how we're liberalism comes from? And because God doesn't interact, all we have to do is ourselves. We're autonomous. We're free to think for ourselves. Because see, God doesn't speak. God doesn't direct. It's just us thinking about things. You see the problem here? And that's the Sadducees. They were intelligent people. But they were materialists. And this is very common, actually. Many of the Hellenistic philosophers, like Epicurus, were materialists. The, the word they would use back, uh, to describe them it was atomists. They believed that they were made of atoms, basically. Very primary, basic, fundamental components. But there was no spiritual mind. There's no spirit self. There's no soul. And this is where the Sadducees sat. Today, materialism is also very dominant Today. And the effect has crept into the church, especially in the last hundred years or so, producing a modern form of liberalism. And again, in theology, the key distinction of liberalism is the denial of special revelation. Think about if God doesn't interact, then what's the Bible? If God doesn't interact with people like prophets, like Moses, like Paul, like Jesus, Jesus was just a bloke like you and I. That is the consequence of materialism. If there is no spirit, if there's no spiritual dimension element in this universe, then all we have is just flesh and bone. And our minds are just the consequence. They're like smoke to fire. But there really is no spirit. There really is no soul. And because of that, you have to take it to the, to the nth degree. You have to take it to that next step. And, and so we say, well, what about the Bible? Well, the Bible is not divinely inspired. The Bible is not a special... You know what special, special revelation is when God is a miracle. And the Bible in itself is miraculous. The fact that God interacts. In order of a miracle, you have to have God interact. God interacted with Moses. God interacted with Joshua. God interacted with the prophets. God interacted with David. God interacted with Paul. And the, you know what I'm saying? This is God interacted with John. All these authors, all these writers of the Bible. We believe that God actually put this together. It's a project of God. But if you're a materialist, 
you're going to have to, you become liberal and you dismiss that. God doesn't speak to us. We just get on with it. God doesn't speak to anyone in any time in human history. So therefore the Bible, and this is the problem that has crept in the church and we've seen it in the church today. Like the issue that happened a couple years ago with sexuality within the church of Scotland. Now, the Church of Scotland is, and you guys know, they're, they're liberal in the theology. And what they, their defense upon their stance on issues of sexuality was to basically reject the Bible. But they don't want to outright say that we reject the Bible. What they want to do is they want to say something a little bit more politically sensitive. So if you remember the guy up in, I think it's Aberdeen, when they asked him, what, what, what about what the Bible says about sexuality? Because the Bible does, is very objectively clear about these issues. And what did he say? Well, it's a matter of interpretation. Now, that's foolishness. What it does is, what he says is, you could just read whatever you want into the scripture. And if you take the Bible and you say, well, you can read whatever you want into the scriptures, it doesn't matter. Because, and the reason why he says that, first of all, is because of this liberal project that God isn't really speaking. It's just people speaking. So what happens is you take the objective, objectivity the object of God out of the scriptures, and you put it into the subjects, us, how we feel about it, how we interpret it. So, and by the way, interpreting, and it's not, by the way, it's not a bad interpretation. That's just silliness. Okay, if I were to come up to you guys, and you want to borrow my car, and I said, yeah, you could borrow my car, here's car keys, but don't open the boot because the latch is broken. And you go, and you drive my car, and you open the boot, and you return to me, and I, I can't show the boot. Because the latch was broken like I told you. That's why I said not to open the boot. And I said, why did you open the boot? Well, you said, well, I thought I interpreted you differently. How do you interpret don't do that? And the thing is, a lot of the precepts of the scriptures is do do this or don't do this. It's not a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of disobedience and rebellion. But if there is no God to interact with the authors of the Bible, because God is a deistic God, liberal, and not a theistic God, interacting, miraculous, speaking, dwelling, then, of course, we would reject things like, you know, like calls to purity, avoiding certain sins, including the sexual types. So that's a dilemma that the church is fighting, is dealing with today, guys. Very similar to what Paul was dealing with then. Next slide. And by the way, the Bible did talk. And just like how today the Bible is being rejected. The Sadducees in many ways are rejecting what the Bible was saying in, in, in their time. Here's some Old Testament portions of scripture that talked about life after death. Spiritual things. And the Bible, the Old Testament is filled with it. And a lot of people believe that the, that the Jewish religion, the Old Testament specifically, doesn't, that there's no view of life after death. You know that a lot of people, and bear in mind, that is a result of the Sadducees, in my opinion. Again, that liberal concept that there is no spirit. And that's why they say, oh, the Jews don't believe in life after death. They don't have a concept of that. There is actually, that's false. Because the Old Testament, for example, has references to life after death. So you can't say there is no Judaistic concept of life after death, because there is. And here's three examples. And by the way, it's assumed and presumed and referred to in the hope of the Psalms is filled with life after death. But here's a couple examples, okay? I know first one you're gonna say, well, Job isn't a Jew, okay? He was contemporaries with Abraham and he predates the Jews. Okay, that's fine, but the, but the, but the Jewish people read it and they liked it. And, and it actually is representative 
of the cultural framework of the time. In Job 19, 25, 27, it says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that, don't forget, Job was very sick and he was tortured. And he had, but he had this hope that kept him alive. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Whoever this Redeemer is, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So he's talking about his death, his demise, his body decaying, the material substance of him, right? Dying. But he still believes that there's an element in him, the spiritual thing, that will resurrect and it will be you know, encased in a new kind of body, if you will. I will see him with my own eyes and not another. How my heart yearns with me. So here he's talking about, I will live again. Not another person, I will live again. And I will see God, my redeemer, after I die. So is this a concept of life after death? And, 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 and how do we connect the Job on this earth and the Job who's resurrected if you don't have a spirit? You have to have a spirit to connect those two or else it's two different people. And he's made very clear, it's me and not another person. Isaiah 26, 19 says, but your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Isaiah, very much so, a very Jewish prophet. Very much so amongst that Jewish religion. The Daniel, another very Jewish prophet, a very devout man, heard from God, not just in principle, but actually heard from God because God interacts with his prophets. And he said this in Daniel 12, 1 to 2, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Just keep it on this slide for a little bit, Lewis. I didn't print this sheet out, but I kind of want to read it. It's a sad story. It's truly one of the sad stories in the Bible, in my opinion, especially if you're a mom or a dad. You know how David messed up, guys, right? How he slept with uh, Bathsheba when she was married to, you know, Uriah. Is that the name Uriah the commander? And then, and then he died and, because David's corruption. He had him killed in war. Um, and then Nathaniel came and rebuked David. And then David repented. He apologized because of his sin. Uh, and then in 2 Samuel 12, uh, uh, David, this is David repenting. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba, I like how the Bible talked about it. it's Uriah's wife, that, that woman belonged to a different man, not David, born to David, and he became ill, so the baby became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with him. Look at the sadness that David has over this child. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him and the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us. When he spoke to him, how can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. 
David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he washed, put on lotion, changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Now think about this. How can David do that? How can I know many people who have this liberal modern concept that God doesn't care, God doesn't love. And when something tragic happens in their lives, they end up hating God and turn their back against God. How could David do the opposite? How could, God, how could David turn to God and worship him? David got up from the ground, cleaned himself up, went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And at his request, they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While a child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted, I wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. When he said that, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. What does he mean by that? There's two ways of interpreting this scripture as well as the other ones we saw up here. And there's, like I said, there's that Hellenistic philosophy, like the Epicurean materialistic way, which says that they will both go to death, which is non-existence. Here, in non-existent land, death, the cares of life will no longer affect us. And this is a good thing, because when we are dead, we cannot experience bad things, because we cease to exist. David's baby has ceased to exist, and so he feels no pain. And someday David will cease to exist and feel no pain as well. That's one way of interpreting it. That's how the Sadducees would see it. That's how materialists would see it. You live, you feel pain, good things and bad things, but when you die, you cease to exist. There's no more pain, so don't worry about it. Is, well, is that what David's thinking, guys? Or is he thinking maybe something else? This is, this is kind of where I lean to as well. Number two, there is a genuine life after death. Some kind of place either terrestrial, an earthly resurrection, as we've seen through some of these Old Testament portions of scriptures, or a celestial place, a heavenly place, that described, as described by Paul in several New Testament scriptures, and by Jesus as he explains the new heaven and the new earth where all the tears we wiped away in Revelation. David will, in this situation, in this case, David will someday actually be with his son. I prefer that. I think that's the... The Christian way of looking at it. That's the scriptural way of looking at it. That's how the Pharisees and Paul most certainly saw it. Not the Sadducees. That's why they're so sad, you see. Next slide, please. Couldn't resist it. Here's the final slide, guys. I'm sorry for going over so late, but I just want to go through this. And this will, this will give us the, our application. Then we'll have some time to fellowship and let the kids roam. So finishing it up. Paul finally gets what he wishes, and that's to go to Rome. Remember we talked about that several times. Paul really wanted to go to Rome. Well, here's how he gets to Rome. In Acts 23, 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel had spoken to him? Again, the Pharisees are open to that. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down, take them away from them by force, and bring them into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. Important. I want to end with this. This is why I'm kind of reading through this quite quickly. Is I want to get to this part. If you feel like Paul, 
And if you feel like there's some persecution like this, it's good to know that God does exist. That God is real as opposed to not. Because God, when he speaks, his words are powerful. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. And we're going to, I want to finish this application bit out together, guys. But we're going to move on and continue on the story next week, as you can imagine. But here's some helpful application, I think, for today. Portion of scripture, or portions of scripture. We serve a God that is real. He, he's not the, the deistic God that, that, that many philosophers even today want to suggest. That he was some kind of atomic being that started off, but he's in some other realm, in some other universe in the bubble of universes. No, that's a deistic God. We don't have, we, don't, we, we reject that thought. We believe in a God who interacts, a God who is the father of Jesus Christ, who sent Jesus Christ, who knows us, who knows the hairs of our head, who knows our thoughts and our hearts and our desires. That's the God who we're talking about. He's real. He is spiritual. Spiritual things do exist. They're real. Yet, he, he's able to interact with us in this world. Like with Paul. We see a real God really interacting with Paul. If he has called you, which I believe he has, if he has given you an assignment, which I'm sure he has, then he will be able to help. He will actually be there with you to help to see it to completion. Let's end with this last verse, Philippians 1.6. Be confident. And the only way you guys can be confident is if you believe God's real and he actually exists in a spiritual dimension of this real world. Okay? We can't be materialists. We have to reject this liberal tendency. And by liberal, I'm not talking about free thinking. Okay? Think and think freely. I'm talking about a rejection of scriptures. That's what I'm talking about, okay, guys? Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, God has begun a good work in you guys. And God will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm.